Well, I'd like to begin this morning by reading some excerpts from a book review that appeared in the weekend edition of the August 27, 28 Wall Street Journal. The author of the review is Barton Swaim. You may be familiar with him, an editorial columnist in the Wall Street Journal company. The book he reviewed, A Guide to Saving Humanity. A Guide to Saving Humanity. It's written by William McCaskill, a 35-year-old associate professor of philosophy at Oxford. I'm afraid that Mr. Swain feels it's a a little bold of someone uh, his age, Mr. McCaskill's age and station in life, to propose uh, writing a book on saving humanity. Uh, I think uh, the reviewer felt that Mr. McCaskill needed a few more years of maturity before uh, tackling that problem. But nonetheless, the author purports to answer this question. What can humans do to ensure their survival and flourishing for the next million years? I know you're all holding your breath and ready for the answers. Mr. McCaskill is the primary force behind a movement called Effective Altruism. It's a web-based Silicon Valley-connected confederation of idealists who believe that carefully targeted charitable giving accomplishes more good around the globe than individual behavioral changes or activism. Again, I'm quoting from the book review. According to their website, Center for Effective Altruism seeks to build, quote, a global community of people who are thinking carefully about the world's biggest problems and taking impactful action to solve them, end quote. Now, Mr. McCaskill identifies two main ways we can impact on our long-term future and survival. Number one, we can affect humanity's duration, ensuring that we survive the next few centuries affects how many future generations there are. We can help ensure humanity's survival. And number two, we can affect civilization's average value, changing how well or how badly life goes for future generations, potentially for as long as civilization lasts. Now, I've tried very hard to understand those two primary points. I will admit that I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, but I understand what he's saying, but I do not know how great an impact these two approaches are going to have, especially when you talk about ensuring mankind's survival for the next million years. The book devotes a chapter on the risks of human extinction by pandemic or asteroid strikes, or climate calamities. He explains that disasters that kill everyone are very extreme. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I would say so. It's a good point. 
He says civilization will collapse and global catastrophes that fall short of killing everyone are arguably much more likely. I would agree with that too. The author admits that although a great deal has been written about the cause of war, quote, we still have a lot to learn about practical ways to reduce the risks of war, end quote. Now that's probably the most solid statement uh, I put, took from the book review. Yes, we have a long ways to go and a lot to learn. Uh, look at Ukraine. The book reviewer's concluding statement of the review I found amusing, and I somewhat agree with him. Never mind what we owe the future, writes Mr. Swain. What does an author owe his readers, question mark? In this case, an apology. Now, many of you may remember Greta Thune, the then 16-year-old Swiss miss who angrily addressed the 2016 UN Climate Action Summit. To summarize her comments to the United Nations, age 16, how dare you? How dare you? You've stolen my dreams. I should be back home in school. Now here again, I found a statement I could agree with. I, I should be back home in school, but essentially she told them, I have to come here to upbraid you and remind you what you've done to me. You're failing us. You're betraying us. Our house is on fire. And coupled with some of her comments that, of course, were covered thoroughly in the media, young girls... Uh, were caught carrying placards that read, You will die from old age. I will die from climate change. Now, I, I don't want to uh, be too strong in my personal opinion about climate change. I'm just trying to illustrate the kind of mood and attitude that is out there in the world today. While we're in here, Life goes on, the world goes on, and attitudes and approaches to our human survival are, of course, much broader than what I'm reading you here. There are many other attitudes and approaches, and I realize that. I'm just trying to give you a little sampling of where we are as far as our world is concerned and what the future holds and how we're going to survive. Mr. McCaskill wants us to survive for a million years. I don't think we're going to make it under the current conditions without intervention. Have we learned nothing from our COVID reaction? In the aftermath, looking back on the way the world reacted to COVID. We are starting to see people admit that we may have overreacted. 
and did staggering economic, mental, emotional, psychological damage across the global spectrum. And is that the approach we're going to take the next time we have an epidemic? One wonders, what do we learn from history? The bottom line, in most cases, not very much. Was the cure for COVID more damaging than the disease? Were the experts right about COVID? Are they right about the imminent destruction of our planet due to climate change? Consider Germany. Chancellor Angela Merkel essentially shut down coal and nuclear as power sources during her time as the leader of Germany and elected to go with cleaner natural gas from Russia, supplemented by wind and solar. Well, I think we all got an experience of the effectiveness of supplemental wind and solar power during our big freeze here a couple of years ago. I'm afraid Germany is going to find out this winter. In fact, winter is coming, and Germany may wish that the globe was much warmer this winter before next spring. You know, I'm reminded of a cliché from a children's story about a character named Chicken Little. Now, a cliché is a trite phrase or expression. It's an overly familiar or commonplace phrase that sort of loses its impact after a while. This is the definition of a cliché. And of course, from Chicken Little, the cliché I'm referring to is what? The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Now, the sky is falling uh, can be defined in, in this way, an absurd belief that disaster is imminent. Because remember, Chicken Little had an acorn fall on his head. I don't know which gender Chicken Little was. He was a chicken. I, uh, I never looked into his LGBTQ background. <laughs> An acorn fell on his head. He thought the sky was falling. Everybody tried to encourage him, and finally he realized it was just an acorn. There's no need to get upset. The sky isn't falling. Now, you see, on the one hand, we've got certain groups of people in our world who are saying the sky is falling. We've got to stop carbon emissions by 2030, by 2050. And as we heard Greta uh, warn the United Nations, we don't have a lot of time. Our house is on fire. And of course, who uh, else has been typed as Chicken Littles? Well, you and I and our types over the years to some extent because we have talked about eminent disaster. 
An imminent disaster has been a topic that mankind has discussed ever since there was a mankind, I suppose. And as we know, in the last days, there are going to come scoffers. They're going to say everything is as it was from the beginning. Nothing has changed. What are you so upset about? And yet at the same time, we may be asked to embrace uh, this climate change discussion or the asteroid discussion or any other number of discussions that point to imminent disaster, which is exactly what Satan wants to do, discredit the truth and discredit God and, of course, discredit the people of God. As I said, this term, the sky is falling, comes from a fable about a chicken who believes the sky is falling. A lot of novels and films and songs have been issued and written about this story, even a 1943 Walt Disney film. The phrase is now considered a cliché, and it remains current. People are still using it. I just did. So from climate change and green energy to colonizing Mars, to effective altruism. There are those who are committed to saving our planet and rescuing the human race. Never mind that in their haste to go green, they are courting potential economic disaster. In many, if not most cases, their answers and solutions center on scientific and technological advancements that they claim will eventually solve our problem of survival and allow the human race to go on. But their plans pay little or no attention to transforming the deceitful and desperately wicked heart of man or human nature. The concept of a creator God who has the power to intervene and save us from ourselves, from calamity, disaster, destruction, and annihilation brought upon us by us, is simply not a consideration. And those of us who do look to Almighty God for salvation and strength may be viewed as naive chicken littles. Those holding the absurd belief that disaster is imminent, afraid to face the future, and unwilling to get involved in solving the problems of mankind. From my perspective, we're more involved in solving the problems of mankind than virtually any other group on earth because we know the cause, thanks to God. After all, as people look at us and as people hear our message, they uh, are going to look at us and see that by and large, we don't vote, we don't arm ourselves, we don't march in protest, we are not political activists, we haven't left the grid and built a compound out in the wilderness. 
So just where do you and I fit in all of this? In a world that appears to be teetering on the edge of multiple catastrophic disasters. Another way of looking at it, when it comes to the future of our planet and the human race, are we optimists or are we pessimists? Well, I'd like to explore these concepts this afternoon, this morning. I hope that I don't go too far into the afternoon. So I'd like to explore this concept of how we are viewed and how we view ourselves and how we should be living our lives in the midst of all the chaos that is going on around us. The unbelievable division and strife and controversy surrounding virtually every concept you can imagine. The world is a divided place. And it's getting more and more divided all the time. So I have three points that I'd like to emphasize this morning and this afternoon. Number one, the world is not going to end. The world is not going to end. Now that should be a very positive message, right? And it is a very positive message. We are here today celebrating the Feast of Trumpets, which heralds the return of Jesus Christ to this earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The age of man will end, and the millennial rule of Jesus Christ will begin. Now, indeed, that is good news. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. And what some refer to as the pivotal scripture of the Bible. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent there, said Peter, uh, therefore, said Peter, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know, God is basically a non-factor in this discussion of climate change and asteroids and settling on Mars and all of the rest of the human solutions to our devastating human problems, which are basically of the spirit and the heart and not physical problems to determine how we can stay warm in the winter and cool in the summer. We figure that out. And of course, I won't get into the, the statistical data uh, that brings some question marks into how rapidly our planet is cooling, etc., etc. But the point is this. Do you think that the great God of the universe, who, if I may use the term, worked so hard to create what you see all around you, to create the human race, is he willing to let all of that go up in smoke? 
Or does he have a plan to finish what he started? You know, he didn't leave, need the seven laws of highly effective people to figure out that you begin with the end in mind. That's exactly what he did. And he's not going to let us fall through the cracks. Now, it's going to be some tough sledding. Maybe that's a, a, an idiom. I don't know. We don't do too much tough sledding around here, do we? We do in Minnesota. Times are going to get difficult. And attributing it to climate change or whatever only takes attention away from what God is doing. And we can never allow ourselves to lose focus on who is really in charge and what is really going to happen and why it's going to happen. Notice here in verse 19 that refreshing is going to come from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing, refurbishing, reestablishing, restoring. What God intended from the beginning will be put in place. And that he may send Jesus Christ, verse 20, who was preached to you before, whom the heaven, verse 21, must receive until the times of restoration of all things. What a beautiful concept. Thank God for his mercy. And his plan for all of mankind. A time of restoration of all things. And note this, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets. Since the world began, it's been the same message. The gospel of the kingdom of God. A gospel that we are intimately familiar with and that we understand and that we are proclaiming. This is an enduring and timeless message within the pages of God's word. It is the essence of the gospel message that Jesus Christ himself delivered during his three and a half year ministry. The gospel of the kingdom of God. It's an optimistic approach to mankind's future. But there are some difficult times ahead, as we know, and we're going to address them. So our first point discusses that the world is not going to end. But then my second point, why then all the gloom and doom? And have you ever heard that phrase used to describe people like you and me who have just nothing but gloom and doom to say? And that this is going to happen and that's, yes, all of these things are going to happen. But the end result, as Mr. Armstrong used to always say, right? In the end, we win. But there are a few chapters in that middle of the book uh, that are going to be difficult. But we're ready for it. 
We know it's coming. And we are the lights of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And we're not going to be drawn in by what the world thinks is going to happen. I doubt if any of us have signed up to be a part of the Mars colony. I know I haven't. Well, like the placard I referred to earlier, yes, I'm probably going to die of old age. But I hope all of us could be alive at the return of Jesus Christ. But even if we're not, guess what? He's coming. And he's going to fulfill his promises. So why all the gloom and doom? Why can't we solve our problems and live happily ever after? Couldn't that happen if we all work together? So why don't you get out there and vote? Why don't you get out there and protest? Why don't you support this or support that? Let's solve this thing. Let's get on with life so generation after generation can survive into millions of years. But we still have to work on this thing about war. We have a lot to learn about that. But anyway... I don't think it, Mr. McCaskill came up with the answer. Not by a long shot. Now, let's review the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. I'm going to summarize them. I'm not going to read each verse. But you know, Christ addressed his disciples in this very important chapter and answered their question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What what things will happen? What should we look for? We're all curious about that. Christ's disciples haven't changed in 2,000 years. We have the same question they did. So what does Christ say? Well, let's take a look at it. His own description of the condition of the world just prior to his return is quite shocking. It's frightening. It's overwhelming in many ways. And it is so accurate in its description of the current events and times in which you and I are living. But I would say that all of us should know this. Without the return of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for the survival of the human race. I think that's a bottom line I hope we can all agree with and agree on. There is no hope of survival. I don't care how many uh, colonies we plant on the moon or Mars. I don't care how much we reduce the amount of carbon we're still not going to stop invasions like the one we're witnessing in Ukraine, which could turn nuclear, which could actually, by some people's estimation, be the start of World War III. Will we look back in history and say, that's when World War III started? This isn't going to end uh, in a pleasant way. I have no idea how it's going to come out. And of course, Mr. Putin wants to keep you guessing. But nuclear intimidation and bribery and threat, if that becomes the standard 
for international politics and international relations, where will that lead us? We are on the cusp of a transformed world. And I don't know about you, maybe it's just because I'm becoming an old geezer, but the death of Queen Elizabeth certainly, in my opinion, brought down the curtain on the culture and the civilization that I was familiar with and grew up in the midst of in the 1950s and 1960s. I look out there today and I can barely recognize any institution, any uh, concept of human relations, of uh, marriage, of family. Everything seems to be changing and not in a positive way. Not all change is good. So we have a world in turmoil. And what are we going to do about it? Well, let's get to that. That's my third point. I have an answer. But first we have to pose the problem. Christ said there would be wars and rumors of war. There are military conflicts in many parts of the world, Ukraine being the primary one of emphasis right now. There are warring factions, division and strife, threatening the stability and survival of multiple nations. How the West and the world, for that matter, respond to Mr. Putin's nuclear blackmail could very well transform the delicate international balance of power and shape the future of future wars and how they will be fought. Listen to this quote from Divided Politics, Divided Nation by Daryl West. Because when you think of war... Uh, don't just limit yourself to thinking about uh, military conflict. We are at war in this nation over the founding principles of God's laws and commandments that did form the foundation of our government and our country at one time. But that is no longer the case in many respects. Listen to his description of the United States today. The United States is caught in a partisan hyper-conflict that divides politicians, communities, even families. Politicians from the president to state and local office holders play to strongly held beliefs and sometimes even pour fuel on the resulting inferno. The polarization has become so intense that many people no longer trust anyone from a differing perspective. Societal tensions have metastasized into a dangerous tribalism that seriously threatens U.S. democracy. Unless people can bridge these divisions and forge a new path forward, it will be impossible to work together. We may have already reached that point. Impossible to maintain a functioning democracy and impossible to solve the country's pressing policy problems. And social media only fans those flames. 
So the warring factions that are in the midst of our nation and online daily, and if you're online daily, you're witnessing it. You have these prompts come up on your screen and all of this information that you and I need to know. We need to make a decision. We need to get to the bottom of this. There seems to be no bottom to much of this. And how much further down can we go? I'm afraid quite a ways, but we'll have to see. Now, Christ clearly told his disciples not to be troubled by these things. Wars and rumors of wars, pestilence and plague, and all of the other horrific things that are outlined in Matthew 24. Do not be troubled by these things, for they must come to pass. There's no avoiding it. They must come to pass. It's the natural uh, consequence of sin. And we're going to feel the brunt of those consequences. That's God's intention. That's the way he established the world and the human race. That's why he had to send his son the first time. And that's why he's got to send his son the second time. The nations and kingdoms in this world will be engaged in conflict, said Christ. Nation will rise against nation. These troubling national and international conflicts will be exacerbated by natural disasters of every kind. And... Famines, earthquakes, pestilences, plagues will affect billions of people on this planet. And how much of it will be attributed to global warming or other factors? And will we once again turn to the model of dealing with COVID to deal with with all of the other things that are happening? Then where will we be? It's going to be a mess. It's going to be very challenging in the future. Billions of people will be involved. And as Christ states, this is only the beginning of sorrows. Only the beginning. It will be an unparalleled time of unbridled, rampant iniquity and lawlessness. An environment in which love will wax cold. This period of time immediately prior to Christ's return is referred to as the Great Tribulation. And Christ clearly identifies it as the most intense and horrific time in all of human history. There has never been a time like the time that is ahead of us at some point. How many of you viewed the United States and the Holocaust documentary last week? Did any of you see it? You wonder how the heart of man could be so hard. 
and how that inhuman-like behavior could be tolerated, could actually take place. One of the most telling scenes in the entire documentary, I watched the three parts, and I wish I could recall the official's name, who was interviewing and talking with a witness of the atrocities. And as the witness gave claim and support to the murder of thousands and thousands of people in a methodical and purposeful way, the response from the American official was this. I can't believe you. And the witness said, are you calling me a liar? And the U.S. official said, no, I'm not calling you a liar. I'm telling you, I cannot believe this is happening. And when you watch the documentary, you realize how not only the Germans, but the Americans and many other countries around the world were in denial. They couldn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. They tried to avoid it. And only in the aftermath was the full horror of what occurred revealed. Never again, we say. And what are they uncovering in Ukraine? Never again. We all know that as long as mankind is under the sway and influence of Satan the devil, mankind cannot say never again and make it stick. Because Satan is a murderer, a liar, and a thief. He is a spiritual force that we are not capable of contending with by ourselves. That spiritual force that is going to move on this earth and in this world prior to Christ's return in an effort to overthrow the plan of God which he has been trying to do now for 6,000 years, that spiritual force is going to increase and the human race is helpless before it. It requires a more powerful spiritual force to confront it, to contain it, and to destroy it and bring about the millennial rule of Jesus Christ and the restoration of all things. It simply cannot happen until that spiritual force is restrained and no longer able to influence the world in which you and I live. And once again, Christ himself stated that unless God intervenes to shorten these days that we're describing here today, no flesh would survive. No flesh would survive. Now, we've had weapons capable of destroying all of humanity now for decades. They were used at the end of World War II, but those primitive weapons 
are just that, primitive, by comparison to what is available today and what they call tactical nuclear weapons uh, that could be used by Russia in their war with Ukraine will definitely be limited in their scope, but they will still do great damage and death and harm, and the fallout that will blow around the globe is going to impact and affect people. Yes, we'll, we'll have to write and think a lot more about how to stop war. Mr. McCaskill got that right. But surviving for millions of years without God's intervention, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against John Kerry, uh, the climate czar for the United States. I don't want to wrestle against him. I, I, I'm not wrestling against Donald Trump. I'm not wrestling against Joe Biden. If Christ were on the ballot, I might vote. But I, I, I don't understand why... Some of us get so concerned about why we aren't politically engaged and protesting and joining forces to try to stop this or start that. You know, there are things we can and should be doing, but I don't think those are the things that God's people should be involved in. It's just my personal opinion. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood. And I don't mean to disparage any human being who's a leader and trying to work in a very difficult environment. I just know that there is what we're reading about here, spiritual wickedness in high places, in heavenly places, that are manipulating and working their program to destroy the human race and God's plan for the human race. We don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places or the high places, and therefore, we're encouraged to put on the whole armor of God, which obviously is a good idea. There is a spiritual force at work during this dark time. And he's been at work for a long time. And his work will intensify as he sees his time growing shorter. It's going to require a more powerful spiritual force to intervene and stop the madness that is going to ensue. And that pause will be affected by Jesus Christ 
and it will be done because of the elect's sake. For the elect's sake, these days will be shortened, thank God. We know that. We understand that. Carefully targeted charitable giving. Thinking carefully about the world's problems. Taking impactful action to solve them will not stop this train. Number three. We are in a time of transition. Let's think of it in terms of a woman who is pregnant. We have several here. A woman who is about to give childbirth. That's the way Paul looked at it in Romans 8. Let's turn there. Romans 8. Verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time, the first century, in his lifetime, yes, we can consider the same approach in our lives right here, right now. The sufferings of this present time and what is beyond this present time are not worthy to even be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. There's, there's no comparison. Where should our focus be? On what lies ahead in the ultimate sense, in the real sense, in the true sense. And not being troubled or uncertain or wavering or indifferent. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God and what those sons of God will do under the direction and guidance and rulership of Jesus Christ. The whole creation is waiting for that, not for the reduction of carbon emissions. Now, I'm not saying we wouldn't be better off if we reduce carbon. But if we reduce carbon and freeze to death, what have we accomplished? I don't know. And again, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds. But think about where our heads should be, our hearts should be, our lives should be focused. For the creation was subjected to what? Futility. Well, why am I standing up? Why am I so negative about everything? I'm not negative. I view myself as an optimist. I hope you view yourself as an optimist. There is true hope for mankind. But we have been subjected to futility. And that's by God's design. He allowed it. But because of him who subjected it in hope. So it's hard 
for especially our young people to expect that the world is a futile place. That can be a pretty uh, difficult approach to take when you're young, when you've got your whole life ahead of you, and all is futility. Well, no, not all is futility. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Abednego, pardon me. Daniel, in captivity, keeping the clean and unclean meat laws. You know, I don't want your stuff, king. Just feed me bread and water. I'll be better off. They rose to do great things in that nation, and they, their lives were preserved, and they accomplished a great deal in their lives. And all of us should be looking ahead to the future, planning for the future, and asking God to open doors for us and give us the strength and courage to face whatever lies ahead. But now consider. Verse 21. The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. The bondage of corruption. Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That is true deliverance. Complete and total. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And I've never been pregnant, but let me speculate a little bit with all due respect to those who are or have been. I'm not uh, a credible witness in that regard. But I've been around a woman who is pregnant three times. And you know, gestation is about nine months. About nine months. But you don't know when it's going to happen. And you, you feel yourself, your body changing. I see my wife's body changing. I, I see her uh, getting larger, if I may use that term without uh, hearing about it at lunchtime. <laughs> and we get these pains, we get these pangs. And oh, is it coming? Oh, not yet. And then you relax a little bit. Oh, well, probably. The doctor says, well, you may have another week or so. So the, the whole point is, you, you can estimate and guess when the baby's coming, but you can't know exactly when the baby is coming. Maybe this fits in with what Mr. Ritchie was talking about. You can't know exactly. But you know there's a baby in there and you're going to give birth. You know it. <laughs> and the bigger you get, the more you know it. So the whole creation is groaning and moaning because when you go into labor, you moan and groan. I, I can testify to that. And we went to the Lamaze classes and I... I found out where to massage in the lower back and bring the chip dice and all of that stuff, but I, I couldn't help the pain. 
I couldn't help it. She had to endure it. And then the command to push. Oh, I don't want to push, but I do want to push. I don't want to push, but I do want to. And finally, out comes the baby. So think of creation as a pregnant woman in birth pangs and labors until now. And that moment comes. And when that new life is brought into the world, all is forgotten. My failure to rub the right place, the ice chips that weren't as solid as they could have been, or whatever my failures were, we were both celebrating the birth of a new little baby, a new world, a new earth. And yet, it's the old one that God designed from the beginning that he handed to Adam and Eve at the start, but they turned up their nose. They said, we're going to make our own choices. Off they went, and we've been going off all this time. And the birthing process is getting close now. The contractions, right? Closer together. And how, how about, you know, how many centimeters is she? All of these measurements realize that we're getting closer. Birth is going to occur. Just as surely as that child is born, so Christ is going to intervene. All of creation has been awaiting this time. Not only that, verse 23, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, our sonship, transformation, and the opportunity to live and reign with Jesus Christ. That's where our emphasis is. Not on reducing carbon emissions. Now, as we close, we all know all of these things. We realize what is coming. We know the cause behind these events. Now, in light of all of that, how are we to live our lives? Well, I'd like you to turn with me as we close to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, Paul writes, you have no need that I should write to you. You know the times and seasons. And there was a point in Paul's ministry when he thought Christ's return was imminent. He later realized, not in my lifetime. But right now, he thought it was imminent. He says to the Thessalonians, I don't need to write to you about this. You know what's going on. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Kind of like the actual time of birth. It surprises you. For when they say peace and safety. And are we going to see a time of recovery? A time of peace and safety? 
Is that yet ahead for us? I don't know. But when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. How? As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Implying what? The world is in darkness. You're not in darkness. That day should not overtake you as a thief. Well, why? You are all sons of light. You are sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. We are not a part of that. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. In other words, you, you lose your ability uh, to think clearly. You lose sight of the future and what God has planned. You're overwhelmed by the circumstances and the darkness around you. You fall asleep at night. You use alcohol. And you lose your ability to reason and to think clearly, among other things. That's the analogy that Paul is using here. Things like that happen in, at the night, in the darkness. You want to stay in the light. But let us who are of the day be sober, serious, determined, committed, dedicated, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're awake at Christ's return or we are in the grave, resting, waiting, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, even as you are doing. That's a big part of our job. You know, we can't allow ourselves to become overwhelmed by the darkness around us, afraid and fearful of the future, reluctant to get involved with our lives and live out our lives and seek for success and accomplishment and achievement, growing in character, developing the mind and heart and attitude of Jesus Christ. That's a full-time job. We should be about our Father's business, asking, seeking, knocking, searching God's will, to determine what he wants us to do as we plan and build for our human future and for our future in the kingdom of God, in the millennial rule of Jesus Christ. We cannot allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep. We need to be up, awake, alert, watching, 
learning, growing. Not paralyzed or frightened, hesitant or passive. We are to be actively engaged in preparing for a bright future and when people encounter us, they should be able to see that light in our eyes. You know, and when people ask you, as Peter said, what, what is the hope? Why are you so hopeful? What is it that makes you hopeful for the future? Do people see that in you or do they see someone who's kind of in hiding, just kind of waiting to see what happens? Are you filled with hope and light and brightness and energy and optimism for the future? Salvation is coming. That is going to happen. Comforting and edifying one another is an important role for us to play. Psalm 146. What a beautiful celebratory psalm of this day. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul, while I live. I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed. He can do that. And he will. He will give food to the hungry. He gives freedom to the prisoners. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. He can do all of those things, physically and spiritually, opening hearts and minds, eyes and ears to the truth. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. 